Chapter 29 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon, GaryBohannon.com Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson The Revolt of the Soldiers The Prison Ships The life of the soldiers in the American camps, at least in the Northern Army, was one which it is difficult to describe. The very fact that but few open engagements with the Redcoats were possible, for each army seemed to be bent upon holding the other in the position it occupied, the British being in New York, and the Americans not far away, in the vicinity of the city in the highlands of the Hudson, or among the hills of New Jersey. All this kept the soldiers in a perpetual state of anxiety and inactivity. Added to these things was the failure to receive much of the pay that was due them, and the little they did receive was of slight value owing to the cartloads of counterfeits the British in New York made and scattered. Naturally, as a result, the vices that are only too common in camp life multiplied, the hunger and homesickness increased, and perhaps among many came a feeling of despair. For with the slowly passing years, the outcome of the struggle seemed almost as far away as when the war had been begun. Log or stone huts or ragged canvas tents afforded them insufficient shelter from the storm and cold, and provisions at times were so scanty that hunger was no stranger to the camps. In a letter to a friend, General Washington wrote at this time, quote, we have had the virtue and patience of the army put to the severest trial. Sometimes it has been five or six days together without bread, at other times as many days without meat, and once or twice two or three days without either. I hardly thought it possible, at one period, that we should be able to keep it together, nor could it have been done but for the exertions of the magistrates in the several counties of this state, Jersey, on whom I was obliged to call expose our situation to them, and in plain terms declare that we were reduced to the alternative of disbanding or catering for ourselves, unless the inhabitants would afford us their aid. Nothing but this great exertion could have saved the army from dissolution or starving. At one time the soldiers ate every kind of horse food but hay. Buckwheat, common wheat, rye, and Indian corn composed the meal that made their bread. As an army, they bore it with heroic patience. But sufferings like these, accompanied by the want of clothes, blankets, etc., will produce frequent desertions in all armies. And so it happened with us, though it did not excite a single mutiny. Unquote. Washington learned, however, that it not only could, but that it did cause mutiny to arise. The officers themselves fared no better than the men. At Morristown, one day early in January 1780, Mrs. Thompson, the Irish housekeeper of the commander, came to him and said, We have nothing but the rations to cook, sir. Well, Mrs. Thompson, replied the general, You must then cook the rations, for I have not a farthing to give you. If you please, sir, let one of the gentlemen give me an order for six bushels of salt. Six bushels of salt? For what? To preserve the fresh beef, sir. One of the aides gave the order, and the next day His Excellency's table was, in a measure, provided for. Mrs. Thompson was sent for and told that she had done very wrong, for it was not known when she could be repaid. 
I owe you too much already, said Washington, to permit the debt being increased, and our situation is not at the moment such to induce a very sanguine hope. Sir, she replied, it is always darkest just before the daylight, and I hope your excellency will forgive me for bartering the salt for some of the necessaries that were on the table. Salt was valued at eight dollars a bushel at the time. In Thatcher's military journal occurs the following record of a soldier's words. Quote, On the third, we experienced one of the most tremendous snowstorms ever remembered. Several marquees were torn asunder and blown down over the officers' heads in the night. And some of the soldiers were actually covered while in their tents and buried like sheep under the snow. My comrades and myself were roused from sleep by the calls of some officers for assistance. Their marquee had blown down and they were almost smothered in the storm before they could reach our marquee, only a few yards, and their blankets and baggage were nearly buried in the snow. We are greatly favored in having a supply of straw for bedding. Over this we spread all our blankets, and with our clothes and large fires at our feet, while four or five are crowded together, preserve ourselves from freezing. But the sufferings of the poor soldiers can hardly be described. While on duty, they are unavoidably exposed to all the inclemency of storms and severe cold. At night, they now have a bed of straw on the ground and a single blanket to each man. They are badly clad, and some are destitute of shoes. The snow is now five or six feet deep, which so obstructs the roads as to prevent our receiving a supply of provisions. Unquote. Under such circumstances, it is not strange that repeated complaints came to Washington that some of the soldiers were stealing the poultry, pigs, and even the cattle of the people dwelling in the region. The sternest and strictest of orders were issued against this practice, but still many of the hungry men persisted. The punishment of death was inflicted in a few flagrant cases, but the general method of punishment was by a public whipping, the number of stripes varying in proportion to the offense. No one was punished without a fair trial, and as many as a hundred lashes were sometimes laid on the bare back by the drummers and fifers to whom was assigned this terrible task. Some of the hardened men were accustomed to place a bullet between their teeth and chew it while they were receiving their lashing, and it is recorded that sometimes the bullet was flat and jagged when the torture ceased, for the whip was made of several knotted cords, which sometimes cut through the skin at every stroke. Another mode of punishment was by running the gauntlet. This is done by a company of soldiers standing in two lines, each man furnished with a switch, and the criminal is made to run between them and receive the scourge from their hands on his naked back. It is not without a gleam of sympathy that we read that frequently the delinquent man runs so rapidly and the soldiers are so apt to favor a comrade that it often happens this way, that the punishment is trivial. But on some occasions, a soldier is ordered to hold a bayonet at his breast to impede his steps. The lighter side of camp life was not entirely neglected, however, and many festivals were planned, particularly by the wives of the officers, many of whom spent all the time they could spare from their families with their husbands in the camps. The cheery, brave, and patient endurance by the wife of General Green of the sufferings of the camps is a frequent cause of comment and her influence was almost as great over the soldiers as it was over her illustrious husband. 
Mrs. General Knox was another helpful woman, and her parties and functions in the camps are frequently mentioned. Then there was the celebration of great days, notably of the anniversaries of the Declaration of Independence and of the alliance with France. At such times, droll processions were formed, and effigies of prominent Tories or Redcoats were carried about, King George, Lord North, and Lord George Germain being the favorites. After the march, these effigies were burned, and as an extra gill of rum was served each soldier, doubtless the hilarity lasted far into the night. But hunger, homesickness, and despair, and more than all the failure to receive their pay, at last had so strong an effect that the dreaded mutiny came to pass, and the following quotation will explain it in detail. The Revolt of the Pennsylvania Line the Pennsylvania line of troops, consisting of about 2,000 men, in winter quarters in the vicinity of Morristown, have come to the desperate resolution of revolting from their officers. Though the Pennsylvania troops have been subjected to all the discouragements and difficulties felt by the rest of the army, some particular circumstances peculiar to themselves have contributed to the revolt. When the soldiers first enlisted, the recruiting officers were provided with enlisting roles for the term of three years or the duration of the continuance of the war. And as the officers indulged in the opinion that the war would not continue for more than three years, they were perhaps indifferent in which column the soldier's name was inserted, leaving it liable to an ambiguity of construction. It is clear, however, that a part enlisted for three years and others for the more indefinite term during the war. The soldiers now contended that they enlisted for three years at the furthest, and were to have been discharged sooner, in case the war terminated before the expiration of this term. The war being protracted beyond the time expected, and the officers knowing the value of the soldiers who had been trained by three years' service, are accused of putting a different construction on the original agreement, and claiming their services during the war. The soldiers, even those who were actually listed for the war, having received very small bounties, complain of imposition and deception, and their case is extremely aggravated by the fact that three half-Joes have now been offered as a bounty to others who will enlist for the remainder of the war, when these veteran soldiers have served three years for a mere shadow of compensation. It was scarcely necessary to add to their trying circumstances a total want of pay for twelve months, and a state of nakedness and famine, to excite in a soldier the spirit of insurrection. The officers themselves, also feeling aggrieved and in a destitute condition, relaxed in their system of camp discipline, and the soldiers occasionally overheard their murmurs and complaints. Having appointed a sergeant major for their commander, styling him Major General, and having concerted their arrangements, on the first day of the new year, 1781, they put their mutinous scheme into execution. On a preconcerted signal, the whole line, except a part of three regiments, paraded under arms without their officers, marched to the magazines and supplied themselves with provision and ammunition, and seizing six field pieces, took horses from General Wayne's stable to transport them. The officers of the line collected those who had not yet joined the insurgents, and endeavored to restore order, but the revolters fired and killed a Captain Billing, and wounded several other officers, and a few men were killed on each side. The mutineers commanded the party who opposed them to come over to them instantly, 
or they should be bayoneted, and the order was obeyed. General Wayne, who commanded the Pennsylvania troops, endeavored to interpose his influence and authority, urging them to return to their duty till their grievances could be inquired into and redressed. But all was to no purpose, and, on cocking his pistol, they instantly presented their bayonets to his breast, saying, We respect and love you. Often have you led us into the field of battle, but we are no longer under your command. We warn you to be on your guard. If you fire your pistol, or attempt to enforce your command, we shall put you instantly to death. General Wayne next expostulated with them, expressing his apprehension that they were about to sacrifice the glorious cause of their country, and that the enemy would avail themselves of the opportunity to advance and improve so favorable an occasion. They assured him that they still retained an attachment and respect for the cause which they had embraced, and that, so far from disposition to abandon it, if the enemy should have come out of New York, they would, under his and his officers' orders, face them in the field and oppose them to the utmost of their power. They complained that they had been imposed on, and deceived respecting the terms of their enlistment, that they had received no wages for more than a year, and that they were destitute of clothing, and had often been deprived of the rations. These were their grievances, and they were determined to march to Philadelphia, and demand of Congress that justice which had so long been denied them. They commenced on their march in regular military order, and when encamped at night, they posted out pickets, guards, and sentinels. General Wayne, to prevent their depredations on private property, supplied them with provisions, and he, with Colonels Stuart and Butler, officers whom the soldiers respected and loved, followed and mixed with them to watch their motions and views, and they received from them respectful and civil treatment. On the third day the troops reached Princeton, and by request of General Wayne they deputed a committee of sergeants, who stated to him formally in writing their claims as follows. First, a discharge for all those, without exception, who had served three years under their original engagements, and had not received the increased bounty and re-enlisted for the war. Second, an immediate payment of all their arrears of pay and clothing, both to those who should be discharged and those who should be retained. Third, the residue of their bounty, to put them on an equal footing with those recently enlisted, and future substantial pay to those who should remain in the service. To these demands in their full extent, General Wayne could not feel himself authorized to reply in the affirmative, and a further negotiation was referred to the civil authority in the state of Pennsylvania. General Washington, whose headquarters were at New Windsor on the west side of the Hudson, received the intelligence on the third instant and summoned a council of war, consisting of the general and field officers, to devise the most proper measures to be pursued on this alarming occasion. Great apprehension was entertained that other troops, who have equal cause of discontent, would be excited to adopt a similar course. It is ordered that five battalions be formed by detachments from the several lines, to be held in perfect readiness to march on the shortest notice, with four days' provision cooked, and measures, it is understood, are being taken to bring the militia into immediate service if required. Intelligence of the revolt having reached Sir Henry Clinton, he cherished the hope that, by encouraging a rebellion, and turning the swords of our own soldiers against their country and brethren, he should have it in his power to effect an object which by his own arms he could not accomplish. He immediately dispatched two emissaries, 
a British sergeant and one Ogden of New Jersey, to the dissatisfied troops, with written instructions that by laying down their arms and marching to New York, they should receive their arrearages and depreciation in hard cash, and should be well clothed, have a free pardon for all past offenses, and be under the protection of the British government, and no military service should be required of them unless they voluntarily offered. They were requested to send persons to meet agents who should be appointed by Sir Henry Clinton to adjust the terms of a treaty, and the British general himself passed over to Staten Island, having a large body of troops in readiness to act as circumstances might require. The proposals from the enemy were rejected with disdain, and the mutineers delivered the papers to General Wayne, but refused to give up the emissaries, preferring to keep them in durance till their difficulties could be discussed and settled. A committee of Congress was appointed, who conferred with the Executive Council of the State of Pennsylvania, and by the latter authority, an accommodation of the affairs with the revolters has been effected. By giving an interpretation favorable to the soldiers of the enlistments which were for three years, or during the war, declaring them to expire at the end of three years. The insurgents now surrendered the two emissaries into the hands of General Wayne, on the stipulated condition that they should not be executed till their affairs should be compromised, or, in case of failure, the prisoners should be re-delivered when demanded. They were eventually, however, tried as spies, convicted, and immediately executed. A board of commissioners was now appointed, of whom three were deputed from the revolters, authorized to determine what description of soldiers should be discharged. The result is that the soldiers have accomplished their views. The committee from prudential motives, without waiting for the enlisting papers, complied with their demands, and discharged from service a majority of the line, on their making oath that they enlisted for three years only. The enlisting rolls having since been produced, it is found that by far the largest number of those liberated enlisted for the whole war. Thus has terminated a most unfortunate transaction, which might have been prevented had the first complaints of the army received proper attention in due season. The fear of Washington that the action of the Pennsylvania troops would lead others to do as they had done was soon realized, for only a few days afterward, January 20, 1781, some of the New Jersey troops at Pompton, doubtless stirred as much by the success of the Pennsylvanians as by the sufferings they were compelled to endure, declared that they too were about to abandon the service. It was a critical time. The men had genuine wrongs, and what they were none knew better than the officers themselves. But desperate measures must be employed immediately, or the army would be lost. So General Washington ordered a brigade of Massachusetts troops to go at once from West Point to Pompton. The soldiers quickly responded, and so unexpected was the arrival of the New England men that the revolters were surprised and gave up their arms without a struggle. And so, by the prompt measures of Washington, what threatened to be the greatest peril the American army had faced since the beginning of the war was quelled. The measures employed were harsh, but nothing but harsh measures would be appreciated at such a time. During these years, the sufferings of the American prisoners in the prisons of New York City were intense. But the men in the sugar houses and churches were almost in paradise in comparison with those who were confined in the prison ships. These ships were vessels of war, 
which had become unfit for service and were, accordingly, brought to New York and anchored near the city, where they were overcrowded with the poor fellows who had been so unfortunate as to fall into the hands of the redcoats. The ships were anchored near the present navy yard, and the Whitby, Good Hope, Scorpion, Prince of Wales, Hunter, Stromboli, Falmouth, and other vessels were by turn found there. The worst of all the prison ships, and the one most bitterly detested, then and now, was the old Jersey. At first she had been a sixty-four-gun ship, but becoming unfit for service, was dismantled, and anchored in the wall Abocht. The wretched prisoners every night heard the cry, Down, rebels, down! And they were driven by the guard into the hold, where the foul air, filth, and crowded conditions were almost indescribable. In the morning, they were greeted with the call, Rebels, bring up your dead. Then the dead would be brought up, and if a blanket could be had, the body was wrapped in it, and buried in a shallow grave on the Long Island shore. The food was insufficient and of horrible quality. The brutality of the guards was great, and the suffering of the poor prisoners was so severe that it is said that more than 11,000 men perished aboard the Jersey alone. Of course, there were numerous attempts to escape. One poor fellow, a young preacher, after having gained the favor of his guard, was taken ashore to get water one day. The guard watched, while the half-starved young prisoner brought the water in a heavy bucket from the spring to the skiff. Suddenly swinging the pail, he felled the guard and dashed toward the nearby woods. The startled soldier rose to his feet and, discharging his gun, gave the alarm to nearby troops. But fortunately he missed his prisoner, who meanwhile had gained the shelter of the woods. The pursuit was instantly begun, and the old story reads that at one time the young preacher encircled a huge tree, his would-be captor moving also about it without discovering him. When he gained the road, he was compelled to conceal himself for hours at a time behind stone walls, in old barns, among the trees, or in any place that promised him a brief shelter. Once he applied at a house for aid, he was almost recaptured. But moving on, at last his strength almost gone, he applied at a Quaker's house for food. The good wife listened to his tale, and then insisted upon putting him in bed, while she baked his filthy rags, and on the following morning her husband carried the wretched man to Sag Harbor, where he found a boat, and was taken across the Sound to the Connecticut shore, and was safe. Another party of four got away by seizing a skiff in which some of the visitors had come to the prison ship, and though they were fired upon, managed to escape. Still another party tried to escape on the ice, but, although a few did get away, others were so weak that they could not run and their frozen bodies were soon afterward found. But escape was infrequent, and the guards on shore were so strong that almost every attempt resulted in failure. Then, too, were the frequent visits of the British recruiting officers, who not only urged the men to enlist under the banner of the king, but told them how the Americans were being steadily defeated, and as the wretched prisoners had no other means of learning how their countrymen were faring, it is small cause for surprise that some listened to the appeals and sought relief or the opportunity to escape by enlisting among the redcoats. But to the credit of the great body of these suffering men, 
be it said that only a very few forgot their country or their honor. Of late years there has been a movement to honor the memory of the prisoners on the Jersey and the other ships by the erection of a monument, and certain it is that no men deserve one more. They could not be exchanged. They would not abandon the cause for which they had begun the war, and though they had no share in battle, still their heroic and patient endurance of suffering is among the best parts of our heritage. Quote, they also serve, who only stand and wait. Unquote. End of chapter 29